0: All right, what's going on guys? So welcome to today's episode. Uh, As always, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you smash that subscribe button and turn on notifications to let you know every time the podcast drops a new episode. So today I'm really excited because I'm sitting here with uh, J.B. and Rosario and we're going to be talking all about obesity, metabolic health and just kind of discussing the public narrative around these subjects since there's been kind of a lot of uh, back and forth between you know, I, I guess extremes, let's say. So first off, Jabian, thank you so much for jumping on the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Can you just start off by uh, introducing yourself and maybe telling a little bit about you to uh, to some listeners who maybe
1: aren't familiar? Hey, thank you for having me on the podcast. So um, my name is Jabian, of course. People know me as Mr. Cockfit on social media. Uh, primarily, I like to cover topics pertaining to nutrition. Uh, I like to write about my background in philosophy and psychology related to nutrition um i'm a certified personal trainer certified nutrition coach i just graduated college with my degree in uh psychology and my degree in philosophy so i'm really proud about that um and hopefully next step is graduate school but um i just like talking about these topics online and meeting with cool people such as yourself
0: Awesome, man. Well, congrats on on graduating. I, d- I did see the uh, some of the grad picks, actually, that you posted. So <laughs> I'm surprised you got to do that in uh, in in COVID right now. So it's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, like, you know, it was all the social distancing stuff. Everybody had to wear a mask, but you know, it was outside. But, you know, I'm glad that I actually got to walk on stage and get something that represented my diploma. So it, it was really, really cool. Um, and then seeing some of my friends you know that I had online class with so seeing some of my professors was really fucking dope. Um it, it wasn't an ideal situation, but it was the cherry on top to a particularly hard time um, for a lot of people out there. So it was really, really good. That's awesome that you got to do that.
0: So uh let, let's just kind of dive right in. Um I know this is something you've been talking about quite a lot on uh, on your social media and so That was one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down with you, because I found that uh, you had some pretty interesting perspectives on on, uh, about some of these subjects. So why don't we just start off by kind of classifying obesity and then differentiating between obesity and just kind of being overweight so people have a little bit more context uh, for for the rest of this discussion.
1: Yes. So typically when people talk about obesity, they define it in terms of BMI. Um, there's different types of classifications and cutoffs for BMI versus overweight versus normal weight versus uh, underweight. And then within obesity, there's different classes of obesity. There's classification one, two, and three. Um, so the, the one that I typically like to focus on is uh, sort of like the first category between BMI, I guess, 30 to 40 because after 40, I mean, it's, it's obvious that the, the sort of health risk that we, we always talk about when it comes to obesity is very real. Um, and then when the overweight category, I believe it's between a lot of people argue about the 25 to 30 category, because there's a lot of nuance in there. Um, and don't quote me on the numbers because I could get it completely wrong <laughs> as far as the, the exact classifications and the exact numbers. But um, it's usually split off like that. I personally like to classify obesity as excessive amounts of adipose tissue. Um, And what we mean by that, what what I mean by that is usually looking at many different types of metrics. So we're talking about BMI, um, DEXA, waist waist circumference, and probably other measurements as well. So not just BMI. but um, So it's having too much body fat on you um, compared to what you probably should have. And we'll get into the nuances of that as well. One of the things as well that
0: um, I think is kind of a common topic of discussion is the difference between genetic influences and environmental influences. And it seems like there's kind of a lot of scapegoat. Uh, like kind of sort of grasping at straws. A lot of the times people be like, oh, it's because of my genetics that I'm overweight or, oh, it's because of my environment that's overweight that I'm overweight. And, you know, obviously both genetic and environmental factors influence, you know, someone's propensity to, to kind of lean towards obesity or, or being overweight. But could you just kind of highlight what some of those influences are, why they impact an individual's propensity to gain weight and kind of fall into these categories? And then also, obviously, there's not like a clear delineation of like, oh, it's 50% of this and 30% of that. But just kind of give a little bit of a background on, on how either one influences uh, you know, the, the obesogenic state.
1: So um, first and foremost, to become obese, you in order to gain that amount of, that amount of body fat, we're talking about obesity, one has to be in a caloric surplus, a chronic caloric surplus over time, because it usually gradually gain a lot of way over a a pretty much prolonged period of time. Um, And most people will try to argue that, you know some people will say, no, it's carbs, no, it's fat, no, it's this, no, it's that, but it's really about energy balance. And not saying that the state of obesity is simply, you're eating too much, but in order to get to that state, you have to eat more calories than you're burning off. and it, it's, it's really about, like, how do we get to that point? And that's where we get into the environmental factors. That's where we get to the genetic factors. There's a, a I mean, I having gone too deeply into the actual genetics, but there are certain genetic components associated with obesity. Um, if your parents are obese, you're more likely to become obese as well. We know that. Um, the reasons why are speculative, and a lot of it's preliminary, but we're getting a good sense and a good idea of what's going on. As far as environment, um, often times when a person isn't really physically active, when they're eating a lot of cortically dense foods, um, when, let's say you're in a lower socioeconomic status, so in that category as well, there's a lot going on. Oftentimes you live closer to fast food restaurants which have calorically dense foods. Oftentimes you don't have access to more nutrient dense foods, which are less calorically dense and more, you know, satiating, more fulfilling, more um, nutritious. Uh, Oftentimes um, it's also about access. Can you drive to go to the store? Can you go get groceries or not? So the environmental impact is extremely important. And you mix that in with the genetic potential to become obese. And then you realize, you know, mix those things together, perfect recipe for a disaster. Um, and another thing too is from more of a hunter-gatherer perspective. Um, we as human beings only recently came to times where we had relative food abundance. So in the past, we were more worried about starvation rather than eating too much and getting a lot of fat. So our, our system of regulation is really, really good when we're in the deficit as far as not letting us starve and trying to gain weight back compared to us overeating. While energy expenditure can increase when we overconsume calories, uh, apparently something is dysregulating, something's dysfunctional because individuals are, are still gaining a lot of weight, it's a lot of fat when they're in that state. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of different considerations. And I just pinpointed and touched on a whole bunch of them. But... Um, it's really about, I like the analogy that genetics kind of loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger, but they're both extremely important. Um, and there's also other related factors, such as the psychological factors. Some people use food as comfort. Some people have, uh, you know, there's cravings. There can be possible psychological addictions to food. That, that is a really big contentious topic that a lot of people like to point out. Um, And there's just more nuance in that area as well. So we got many different moving parts. We also got behavioral considerations and and all that.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting subject. I I wrote a, a paper a while back. It's behind a paid wall, unfortunately. But uh, it it essentially talked about a lot of the environmental factors, kind of like you brought up, and then even went into uh, trauma, binge eating disorders, and different things like that. And it's like, once you kind of see the full scope of what's going on, it's honestly pretty shocking. And it can put a lot of things into perspective, especially your own behavior. I know for myself, anyways, it it put a whole lot of my eating behaviors and my relationship with food into perspective. And that was fairly shocking, because, I mean, I don't think historic, like, not historically, but like... I'm 285, I'm a powerlifter, I'm tatted up. I'm a big dude. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, this guy's got disordered eating behavior, you know what I mean? Like it seems like that would kind of be the last thing that you would assume anyways. And so it's it's pretty interesting how prevalent a lot of these things are, especially within like different spheres of lifting culture, I guess. Um, can you I know you touched on, body fat, waist circumference, and, and BMI. Can you just kind of speak to the utility of, of some of those measurements as well as limitations? Because each one of those gets a lot of
1: criticism, mostly BMI, I, I think. So. so I actually wrote a whole entire um, article piece on my newsletter, uh, Critical Nutrition, on the argument that BMI is racist, because uh, that seems to be a common sort of assumption that people are making about BMI because it was made by a white man, um, you know, Adolphe Quetelet. But the actual real reason that BMI was used is because of Ansel Keys and colleagues. So pretty much Ansel Keys needed a sort of measurement to look at relative body fat across populations because he was inter- interested in population health. Um, so to do this, he had to look at these different indexes. And many people had many different indexes. So um, so like insurance companies had their own different index, uh, other different types of uh, physically active jobs had their own different indexes. So we didn't have a set measurement to measure relative body fatness. And this was when um let, no, not let Ansel Keys and colleagues decided, okay, we're gonna use the let index and see if it correlates well with. Something like skinfold measurements, which it did, it correlated pretty well with. Um, so he was like, you know what, across different populations, mind you. So he he looked at cohorts in Asia, he looked at cohorts in America and Europe, w- whichever co- cohorts that he had available, he used, um, and it correlated pretty well. So he was like, okay, this isn't a perfect measurement, but this is the best that we have so far, as far as the data is concerned. Um, Because we need some type of measurement to measure relative body fatness um, across the population. But he did admit that BMI is pretty inaccurate as far as actual body fat percentage and body composition, because that does matter. When we talked earlier about uh, the overweight categories, so that I just looked it up. So it's 25 BMI to about um, 30, right? Um, In that range, there's The nuance of body composition and where like the body fat actually goes to. So this is why I mentioned waist circumference because, um, body fat around the abdomen area is different than let's say body fat acts differently upon the body compared to body fat around, let's say your legs or arms. Um, the body fat around your midsection, around your abdomen, around your organs can actually be more detrimental as far as health is concerned compared to other body fat uh, other areas where body fat is. Um, and that's in, really, really important because um, that's where we get into the whole cardiometabolic health uh, issues, such as diabetes, such as heart disease, uh, such as, as metabolic syndrome, uh, insulin resistance. So, um, trying to gather my thoughts here. <clears throat> so, pretty much, this is why we, we really want to look at body composition, not just BMI numbers because that can put things more to perspective. Now, um, waist circumference is good for that because it's showing like, okay, you have a pretty wide waist. That means you probably have a lot of body fat around your midsection. Now, is that a perfect measurement? No, it isn't. Um, there's probably something more accurate, like a DEX or MRI where we can actually see, all right, how much body fat percentage do you have? And there's error in that as well, but those are way more accurate. But the problem is accessibility, and the competency of the practitioner themselves. Not everybody knows how to do a DEXA scan. Not everybody has access to that machinery. Not everybody knows how to do an MRI scan. Um, not everybody has access to that you know type of technology. So uh, things like uh, BMI are really easy to do, really easy to understand for practitioners, and they're really easy to de- deploy. We just have to get your height and weight and then just put it in the equation and then boom, we get it. A waist circumference, all we need is a tape measurement just measure around your waist then we get what your waist circumference actually is um and there's also hip to waist ratio which is also important because if you have like we talked about um fat like a lot of uh fat around your your uh, hips compared to um your waist that would indicate that okay like um you don't have as much adipose adip- like adipose tissue in your mid- midsection area Um, compared to like let's say like your legs for instance so like okay like um that's a good indication that's a better sign than the opposite of that so uh those are really important considerations and i'm sure there's other measurements for for relative body fatness and more accurate measures for that matter and i know i just jumped all over the place (laughs) so please stop me if i if i got you lost and i'll go back and and talk about anything and clear up anything no, it's all good. And to be honest, I don't know
0: why BMI gets so much hate. It it kind of seems like people don't necessarily understand its utility, right? It, it's kind of like looking at EMG and saying, well, EMG doesn't do this, therefore we should throw it out. And it's like, yeah, but EMG is not meant to do that, right? And so yeah. when, you, when you look at the purpose, and exactly like you said, you look at practical limitations of DEXA's and, and other types of measurements. And it's like, BMI is easy, it's accessible, it's simple to understand. And then just through simple like visual scanning of an individual's body, and then you overlap that with with BMI. And it can be very very simple, very streamlined, and very accurate tool for, for evaluating someone's basic health markers, you know? And yeah, so I, I don't know why you would necessarily throw a tool like that under the bus. It, it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, but that kind of brings us on to do something else because, you know, people talk a lot about the difference between metabolically healthy, uh, obese individuals versus metabolically unhealthy. And for instance, like I'm classified as morbidly obese. I have a, uh, what is it? A BMI of like 39 or something like that. But yeah. I mean, you look at me and I'm not obviously obese. I have like a crap ton of muscle and like I'm an athlete and I train. Right. So, that's not necessarily what people are talking about when they're talking about the metabolically healthy obese individuals. They're talking about like a specific subset of individuals who generally genuinely do have a, a significant amount of adipose, adipose tissue. And I just wanted to, you to kind of like go into that and differentiate between the two and maybe create some some a little bit more understanding around why that might be the case for some individuals, as well as like what that means for the general public?
1: Yeah, so I covered this a while back with um, the Cosmopolitan magazine pertaining to um, obesity is healthy. And when we really look at the literature, we kind of find that we don't have a set definition of metabolically healthy obese. Um, Some studies would I guess use the criteria of metabolic syndrome, which is like a cluster of different issues pertaining to, you know, um, glucose levels, pertaining to triglycerides, um, and, and blood lipids and stuff like that. And the the issue with uh, some of the classifications is they'll label metabolically healthy as those who probably have insulin resistance but nothing else or they'll probably label those who are metabolically healthy as those with um, high triglycerides and high LDL levels, but nothing else wrong with them. Um, And obviously, those are risk indicators for something else down the line. So we can't just label them as healthy if they have problematic uh, biomarkers. Um, And on the other end of the spectrum, if we label metabolically healthy as those without any type of issues, but who are identified as obese, we clearly see that um, that number of people is really small. Um, That those without any type of health issues probably possibly make up, I would say, comfortably less than 10% of those who are obese. Because I know people throw around the, oh, one third of obese individuals are metabolically healthy. Well, if you really, really look at the numbers, those without any type of health issues, any type of problematic biomarkers probably make up less than 10% of those who are obese. And that's me being generous. And the the problem is, is that um, over time, those who are classified as metabolically healthy obese, if they continue on their current path of staying obese and possibly getting weight, they will probably be classified as metabolically unhealthy obese, which is, you know, those with certain metabolic problems, insulin resistance, we're talking about problematic blood lipids, um, possible... Uh, cardiovascular dysfunction, uh, possible dealing with diabetes, and, and that type of uh, chronic illnesses related to metabolic uh, disease. And that, that is a huge um, problematic instance where we're, we're labeling a group of people as metabolically healthy, when in reality, they're probably not. And they're still at increased risk for being metabolically unhealthy later down the line. Chronic diseases take time. It doesn't happen overnight, and those who are obese are still at great risk if they keep going their current t- trajectory. So it, it's it's really problematic when people will just throw out this oh, but you know I could be meta- a metabolically healthy obese individual. Well, the the first question is what do you define as metabolically healthy, and how will that play out for you in the long term? You know, and that's something to really consider. Um, and I know people will talk about body composition, I know people will talk about, you know, different considerations and factors, but how many of those who are over a 35 BMI are physically active, or are, are eating really nutritious foods, or, you know, are, are living a, a what we consider like a healthy, active lifestyle? I would argue not many. <laughs> so it, it's, it's something really important to consider in this conversation. And it's something that we can't just throw around. We need to get sp- specific about this and define our terms and what we mean.
0: And I've definitely seen a lot of the uh, cherry picking of evidence when we're talking about things like this, um, specifically with regards to metabolically healthy individuals. You know, they'll point to someone and be like, see, this individual's you know healthy. And it's like, okay, but... That's one out of like eight hundred thousand, you know, and right. so it's it's not necessarily reflective of the larger, uh, the larger representation of the uh, the actual demographic that's being looked at. And so, I, I think that this is a really big problem because it sort of prevents any forward momentum going. You know, like I know that previously, it, it seems like this is a, a massive overcorrection. I think you see this a lot in nutrition sciences and sports science, things like that, where we once thought this and now the evidence is changing. And then there's this massive overcorrection, right? Like at first, protein didn't matter. Then protein was the only thing that mattered. And then nutrient timing, you know, really mattered. And then they found out that so long as total protein intake was equated, it's relatively similar. And so then it's like, oh, now nutrient timing doesn't matter at all. And it's like, okay, I, I don't know how accurate either of those are. And it's usually somewhere in the middle. And it seems like a lot of this is happening with the uh, with the uh, regard to like body image, right It's almost mm-hmm. like they're taking this this social issue of um, fat shaming and uh, what is it like socially constructed beauty standards. I don't know exactly how people yeah. refer to it, but, and and then they're trying to sort of like force it or like make it fit within the literature and and trying to disprove that this stuff is real. And it's like, uh, you can't always do that. Like you, you just have to kind of look at what the research says and then whatever it says, that's what it says, you know, like, and and I think there's a lot of overcorrection going on right now with regards to this, because there definitely is a, a predominant narrative that's being forced. And I think that's dangerous because, you kind of get individuals adopting this, this notion that obesity is healthy, being overweight is healthy. And like you said, the idea that someone who's significantly overweight or obese is regularly involved in physical activity and is also monitoring their diet, maybe their blood sugar and, and other you know, potential things is pretty unlikely you know, because those seem like they're very oppositional lifestyles. In, in a way, you know, not saying that it doesn't yeah. happen, but it's definitely not the norm. And so how much does exercise impact metabolic health? Because it absolutely does have an impact, but, you know, so from a practical standpoint, maybe it's not necessarily representative of those individuals, but how much does it actually impact an individual who is overweight or obese and, and how much would they need to lose to see a significant uh, improvement in their, in their biomarkers?
1: So from the top of my head, the last, from what you said, um, last question, we know that it's between five to 10% of, uh, body weight, body, body weight percentage loss. So if you weigh, you know, let's say 300 pounds, you want to lose about like 30, um, for instance, for, for that, uh, 10%. But, um, that is, you know, that that's a, a important consideration for improving your biomarkers, improving your metabolic health, and also, not only losing that, but also keeping it off in the long term, that's the real nitty gritty of um, this conversation, long term weight loss management. As far as exercise itself, it is really, it's a really important impactful tool. Uh, we know that it does impact, impact metabolic health and it is protective against certain illnesses such as, you know, cardiovascular disease. Um, Exercise itself is not as powerful as an intervention as, let's say, dietary factors, um, because you could run, let's say, for who knows how long, you lose like 100 calories in an hour from running, but as soon as you get home and you have that cookie, you know, you just eat it back. So what's really powerful is not only the dietary factor, but also marrying it up with physical activity together. it is just the best of both worlds uh, because it just, I, I feel from a psychological perspective with the clients that I worked with, it helped reinforce the other. Um, I'm not sure about the literature pertaining to that, but that would be a really interesting discussion as well. Um, but yeah, diet is more impactful than exercise alone, but exercise and diet together creates the perfect package and it helps individuals uh, lose weight and try to keep it off. Um, when we're looking at long term, Weight loss management as far as keeping that 10% off, you know, and hopefully we want them to lose a little bit, probably a little bit more than that 10%, because um those who tend to lose a lot of weight uh during their intervention stage often keep off more weight. Like if we're looking at the look ahead trial or something like that, for instance, which is probably some of the best data that we have on long-term weight loss management. But another thing that's really important besides the diet and the exercise is also the, the support the behavioral support, the behavioral interventions, and the support behind that. So what do you do after the diet? Um, that's really important. And having a team that takes that helps you through that process, having a dietitian, having the coach, having someone there to, to keep you accountable and keep reinforcing those behaviors for you, we know that that's pretty important. Um, and it's something that's usually neglected. People will tell you, oh, yeah, go to the gym, eat right. And those two things are essential and important for losing weight, but also how do you keep the weight loss off? Um, well, how do you keep the weight off for long, the long game, the long term? And we know what's really important is that just that support, that accountability, having someone in your corner, um, someone that's knowledgeable, that could teach you and guide you is just a, is such a powerful tool. And it's something that's often neglected in this conversation. It's not only about willpower. It's not only about doing this diet or this exercise. It's really about sticking to something. And how do we help people stick to something? We support them.
0: Yeah. And that definitely speaks a lot to differences in, in restraint, right? Like flexible versus rigid restraint in, in the literature. So, um, for anyone who maybe doesn't necessarily know what that is, uh, a flexible restraint would be, you know, exercising discretion and, and restraint, obviously, in a diet, while still having some specific parameters around your diet for whether it be like macronutrients that you're, you're tracking or calories, or I don't know, any particular generalized structure, uh, versus like rigid restraint would be something a little bit more like, um, I'm cutting out carbs, right? So like, Keto is a little bit more rigid. Uh, carnivore is very rigid. Um, so things like that tend to be good predictors of, of dietary failure, actually, believe it or not. Um, and just kind of circling back to what you were saying earlier about uh, the, the literature on exercise in conjunction with diet, there is quite a bit of literature showing that there's, there's three specific things that are highly predictive of, of long-term weight loss management. Um, one is maintaining some sort of dietary control uh, two is regular weight uh, checking. So whether it's daily or you know, a handful of times a week. And then the third is regular physical activity. And exactly kind of backing everything that you just said is is the lifestyle to support the consistency and the sustainability of those habits. So when you're doing all those three things combined, it really just does kind of perpetuate this lifestyle of, hey, this is something really important. It's something that I'm consistently managing. I'm consistently aware of. A lot of the times people you know, maybe neglect looking at the scale because it sucks if you're overweight sometimes, like mm-hmm. I know how that feels as well. Uh, but at the same time, in in a lot of cases, unless you actually have a specific like psychological disorder, like let's say anorexia or bulimia or something like that, I think in in several cases, probably most, I would venture to say it's going to be beneficial to to actually have some sort of like idea of where your weight is trending on a regular basis. Um Yeah. And honestly, that kind of annoys me too. Like when, when people talk about abs and they're like, Oh, abs are made in the kitchen. It's like, dude, you need both. It's like, it's like, what's more important, the car or, or the key. And it's like, dude, you need both. Like you do, you you need both. This is, this is ridiculous. Um, questions. I kind of wanted to go into, uh, into some of the emerging treatments. I'm not sure if you have any familiarity with uh, some of the new medications or alternate treatments outside of diet and exercise. Um, Yeah. So maybe maybe if you could touch on that, if you're not too familiar with that, no worries, and we can just kind of move on.
1: Yeah. I mean, I heard about a recent drug that came out. Uh, I totally forgot the name, but I heard people were making a ruckus about it, that um, those who took the pill, uh, like the intervention group that took the the medication saw more weight loss than those who didn't. And this was a big topic that was blowing up all over my social feed, but I definitely forgot the name. And I'm not, too familiar with the medications, uh, that's more on the pharmaceutical side. Um, but I am aware that there are treatments besides just lifestyle. Um, there are like um one of the most successful interventions that we that we have in our tool belt is uh surgery, um bariatric surgery. So there's still a failure rate for that as well, believe it or not. But that's one of the most powerful tools that we do have so. In addition, like people that are listening to this, it's not just about diet, you know, exercise and lifestyle. Those are important. Don't get me wrong. But there are other interventions such as surgery, such as medications, um, maybe even seeking some psychological help. Um, sometimes there's a big psychological component to why someone is obese. And you often see that many a times. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen that yourself, my friend, but uh, that's a big, it's a, it's a pretty big component.
0: Yeah, I, I, actually did work with someone who had bariatric surgery and, uh, this was quite early on in my career. I wasn't really familiar with, with it, but they ended up losing like, I think 120 pounds because of it. And they kept it off successfully for several years. Um, I have I don't know what, what they're doing right now, but I would imagine they probably were able to maintain it fairly well. Cause yeah, so, so I, I, definitely know that it does have very high success rate, but, uh, I haven't worked with tons of people who've gone through that, um, I want to touch on haze because I know that's something that you've um, spoke about a handful of times. You made some very specific criticisms to to particular things that, that they've kind of come out with. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with Hays, uh, it's just kind of a, I don't even know how you'd characterize it. Let's just say like a social movement. It's it's a, an organization that promotes uh, haze is called Healthy at Every Size. So initially, uh, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Initially, Hayes wasn't necessarily designed to help people enhance their health. It was more or like specifically related to, to body weight or body composition. It was more about improving people's psychological well-being and their relationship with food and, and things like that. Um, and now they've kind of expanded their scope and some of the things that they've talked about Um do you want to kind of maybe fill in any blanks that I I maybe missed out or maybe
1: make any corrections that maybe I was, uh, off on? No, that's pretty good. So haze is more of a weight neutral approach. Um, I, I think, um, people in the past quickly realized that, um, I mean, even currently in some of the literature that many of the dietary interventions failed outright failed. A lot of people, as far as failure, when we classify failure, people regained weight over time. And we have more context as to why, but there was this sort of uh, issue with a lot of the dietary interventions seemingly failing. And a lot of people were like, okay, the obesity numbers are increasing. You know, uh, chronic illnesses such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease is increasing. What do we do? Um, and some, I know it's a mix of registered dietitians as well as uh, PhD First person that comes into my mind is Lindo Bacon, that wrote a book on this as well, who try to come at it from a different angle that instead of trying to focus on weight loss and weight number and numbers for those with obesity, why don't we try to focus on behaviors? Why don't we try to focus on implementing health behaviors um, that they can so they can achieve health in the long term, in the long run. Um, And I don't disagree with that whatsoever. I think coming at it from a behavioral standpoint is important. I think uh, a lot of times with the conversation with Hayes, it goes from that point of view that, hey, let's focus on behaviors to the socioeconomics of it, which obviously are important. But then when we go from that aspect, then we get into the activist side where uh, things get a little bit muddled. Um, and people start repeating stuff. we not necessarily knowing where they're getting it from. But I don't disagree with Hayes in that respect at all. I think that any individual can achieve health at their current size. Um, how we get there is a different story. And coming at it from a behavioral standpoint is ingenious in my perspective. I think that's exactly what we should do to get people to live a healthier lifestyle. Like not having them lose weight at all costs. I think majority of people who are listening to this would disagree with that. Um, It's just when it gets to the political side and the activist side, that um, the the rational message gets lost in translation. And I wrote a bit about that, why that's probably happened and some of the misinformation in those circles because I believe it comes from a genuine place. You know, people are suffering. You know, people are dealing with eating disorders and disordered eating, um, and a lot of the method- methods that we have are just not working well for them. So, what do we do? How do we go about that? And we quickly went from that to okay, all diets are bad. Everyone who does a diet is bad. Anyone who sells a diet is bad. Um, and that's just going from. One extreme to another, and that's not necessarily helping anyone. Um, and we get into fat acceptance from that because that's that kind of infiltrated haze a bit and sort of switched the dynamic a lot if you wanted to get into that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I've seen a, a lot, right? Where there's some sort of initial push that has a really, really strong and logical like foundation to it. And then you get a lot of opportunists who just kind of see something like, Hey, I'm just going to kind of infiltrate this movement, jump on board and then sort of manipulate it until it's no longer what the original form was intended to be. And that's a lot of what I see coming out at at least what I've seen lately. Admittedly, I don't follow it as much now anymore as, as I did previously, just because I guess I was kind of put off of, of, the direction they were going after a little while, uh, if, if I'm being honest, but yeah, let's, let's touch on fat acceptance and kind of body positivity and some of the current narrative and, and how that's, uh, sort of
1: shaping the direction now. Yeah. So fat acceptance was a pretty much a social movement that started in the 1960s. It's really related to feminism and feminist thought. So these individuals started to, um, to sort of back against the societal expectation that they had to look a certain way or be of a certain weight. Um, and this quickly got more extreme over time with uh, certain groups declaring that, um, you know, all diets are bad and those who are trying to lose, trying to get them to lose weight are evil and things of that nature. Um, and, and the problem with uh, uh, just fat acceptance is that it, it sort of denies the reality and the facts that obesity is very detrimental and in many instances consider a disease in its own right. Um, the outward deny that. You know, this is often a, a movement that denounces the medical establishment as fat phobic because they believe that obesity is purely okay. It's a matter of just genetics in many of these individuals' perspectives. Um and that they have a right to be liberated to look however they want to look and that there's nothing wrong with their health whatsoever. Um, And obviously that's not necessarily true from our earlier conversations. And how this infiltrated Hayes in a a way is, a lot of these fat activists um, are adopting the Hayes paradigm and using it as a crux, as a sort of scientific validation of their arguments. Like, hey, see, it's not being fat; it's you know behaviors. Um, and again, no one's saying that behaviors don't matter, but having too much adipose tissue is not conducive to long-term health. Um, and the the issue that we're having with fat acceptance and haze is that a lot of practitioners are sort of adopting these views, these viewpoints. Um, And it comes from a genuine place. Like We don't want people to be shamed for the way that they look because it's most likely not going to get them to change. It's most likely not going to get them to be a better individual by just calling them fat. But at the same time, this sort of opposition to that is leading people to to denounce or outright deny that there's a problem in the first place, Um, which is really problematic when we have dietitians saying that it's not... It's not the fact that you're obese that's, that's harming you. It's that fact that people are fat phobic that's harming you. And nobody could show that to be the case um, as far as long term health outcomes. Um, fat phobia doesn't cause cardiovascular disease. I mean, there's no evidence that it does. So, I mean, if someone could show that to me, then that's perfect, but I'm, I'm still holding my breath. Yeah, I think
0: only recently have I sort of been introduced to some of the rationales um admittedly i honestly thought it was a, a farce like i thought it was um like satirical at first because people would send me these things and they were just so outrageous that i was like oh ha, 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 that's hilarious um yeah because i was like there's no way that anyone could believe that but these are actual legitimate like belief systems that are that are held like i remember hearing something to the effect of like I think you actually mentioned it earlier something something about like obesity being um an extension of white supremacy or something like that and I was just like what? Yeah. Like <laughs> like when you hear things like this I'm like like a 4-year-old can hear that and be like that's nonsense. You know? And it's it's just it's just so crazy. Like I remember when I would hear these things I was like there's no way people actually believe that. Like I just I still can't even conceptualize a way where that could make sense to someone. And I don't know. I I honestly think that a lot of that has to do with just confirmation bias. You know, like you have something, some sort of belief system where you need an out and this is the only thing that's crazy enough to kind of fit the mold. And you're like, yep, that seems to work for me. And you're just like, oh,
1: okay. I think it's a genuine, um, oftentimes when, when there's a real issue, like, you know, obesity, the numbers have really doubled since the 1980s, and that can't be purely due to genetics. It's, it's just not a real possibility. But when you have a real problem such as obesity, which is, we just said, multifaceted complex, and you have people shaming these individuals who probably don't want to be obese. You know, it's not like someone wakes up one day and says, you know what? I want to be obese. I just want to be 500 pounds, not being able to to move the way i want to move at risk for these diseases a lot of people know that they have a particular problem they want to change it they want to be better um but when you have a a sort of people shaming you the media kind of not portraying you in the the most favorable light for being fat i mean look at homer simpson and, and peter griffin they're fat lazy drunks you know so it's like it's not the the best portrayal of someone who's obese um or considered obese and then you have uh just in your own personal life being fat shamed um not only by strangers or the media but also in your own personal life you you often want to oppose that so a good way to oppose that is outright denial denial of the problem um and we see this from a psychological perspective just outright denial of the problem the problem isn't me it's you because you're you're treating me like trash and it's not that's not necessarily the case. The problem is, yes, the way people are treating you, but also your physical state is a problem for yourself. Um, and that's a more rational perspective than just everybody else is the problem, not me, versus, you know, everybody needs to beat me down or into submission or something that's not necessarily, that I didn't necessarily ask for. Um, so I, I think it the whole anti-diet, uh sort of extremes the whole fat acceptance extremes and the haze uh, bs that we're seeing online is a direct opposition to a really real problem but it's taken so far to the extreme um that it's it's no longer recognizable
0: yeah and i mean i imagine over time they're going to kind of course correct and find something that's a little bit more productive because i still do think that the the Central concept of haze is, is pretty good, you know, and like things like intuitive eating can be very, very helpful, and even in the literature are shown to be quite helpful with treating people who, who do have like eating disorders or where nutrition and body weight and things like that are stigmatized. And so I think there's a lot of really great concepts there, but uh definitely some of the directions that I've seen it go in. And I'm I'm nowhere near as involved as as you are in this subject. I've just kind of seen things intermittently and I'm like, oh my god, like this is a circus. <laughs> you know, but, um, I, I would imagine that over time it's likely going to kind of swing back into a little bit more of a neutral position, but, you know, oftentimes you see these kind of massive overcorrections to, to things that maybe take a little while to kind of smooth out again. Um, so as, as far as obesity comes and well, sorry, not even just obesity, but, um, in being overweight, can you just kind of touch on ambivalence? Cause that does seem to be a pretty big problem. You know, a lot of individuals I've talked with uh, do want to lose weight, but mm-hmm. they also want to maintain their their current lifestyle. They want to go to the gym and exercise, but they also want to go out and spend time with their friends and don't necessarily want to compromise their current lifestyle and and things like that. And so, that is a really big uh, issue for a lot of people. And I thought that you could potentially touch on some of the. I guess more nuanced aspects of that, even from like a psychological perspective on on how people can maybe confront this or maybe look at things from a due perspective to gain a little bit more traction in this in this
1: area. So, I mean, there are different theories of change. Um, I believe that you know there's a, the stages of change where you have the pre-contemplation, contemplation, and then you know actual action. Um, and, and the problem is, is that there, a lot of people are obsessed with the idea or the gains right, of, of looking a certain way or feeling a certain way, but they don't want to commit to the actions themselves, or they don't want to give what their goals require. Um, and that's not how life works. You, you, can't, you can't get that way um, because your particular actions are giving you a result already. If you're overweight... Your actions gave you that result, whether you wanted it or not. If you want a different result, apparently you have to change your actions. And by changing your actions, you have to change your behavior, your thoughts, um, and your environment. There's no other way around it. Because you can't be in an environment that encourages you to be at the state that you're still at. You can't keep doing the same things over again. And you can't think the same things that you're thinking because they're not going to help you. Um, in the end and that's more from a cognitive behavioral standpoint and then there's another uh, topic called cognitive dissonance where a person kind of knows what they should be doing but they're not doing it so you see like this tension this tension here so what people usually try to do is rationalize what they do to kind of ease that tension up like hey i'm eating this cheeseburger but i'll work it out in the gym or whatever it's fine You know, but it's like, what's the rest of your diet looking like? Still looking like crap. Still not looking is it's not helping you with your goal. It's not nutritious for you. It's not conducive to getting to where you want to go. Why are you doing it? And a lot of times it's it's also comfort that transitional stress when you're transitioning to another area of your life where you want to make a big change. Um, And that's stressful, It's fearful. It's really comfortable to go out with your friends. It's really comfortable to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's really uncomfortable to switch over to something else and say, you know what? Um, Sorry, guys, I can't go to the bar. I'm going to go to the gym, or I'm going to go, you know, I'm not sure what type of uh, healthy supermarkets or or food places you have in your area, but I'm going to go there. You know, like it's really hard to do that. and it's really hard, it's just hard to change a role. Uh, this is why this is the area of study, change. Um, and I think ambivalence is a sort of natural occurrence that we all deal with to some extent um, because changing something about yourself is very uncomfortable. It's very unsettling uh, and it requires a lot.
0: Yeah, it is pretty difficult tonight. I think one of uh, one of the issues or, or, I guess, sort of perspectives that I've definitely had to battle at times with some of the athletes or, or just kind of gen pop that I've coached has been the idea that it needs to kind of be all or nothing, right? This sort of like <laughs> dichotomous view of, okay, I'm going to jump on a diet and I'm going to do this and this and this, and then so often I'll be like, it's probably not a good idea. Maybe we should just kind of take a little bit more of a graded approach. And they're like, no, 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 I did this in the past. It worked really well. I'm like, did it? Why are we here then? <laughs> you know, if it works so well, <laughs> why are we back here? Like most diets work. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand. When you look at the literature, most diets actually work very well. Most people actually lose a substantial amount of weight, as you mentioned, uh, which is classified usually as around, you know, 10% of their body weight. The issue isn't in, in weight loss. It's, it's weight ma- management long-term. And uh, this idea that, you know, the extreme is what's going to get you there or that you can just kind of somehow ramp up to that level. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily treat nutrition as a skill, right? Where, when in reality, it absolutely is a skill. And no one would necessarily go into a pro fight with only two weeks experience boxing right? Everyone can see there's a massive difference there and it's probably a bad idea and you're going to get your face mashed in, but everyone wants to jump from never dieting at all or having very unsuccessful history of, of, uh, dieting into the most advanced, you know, nutrient timing strategy where they're doing carb cycling and calorie cycling. And, you know, it's like at 10:58 you pick up your fork, but by, by, uh, you know, 11 PM, you have to put it down. You can't eat for another 13 minutes because you're, I don't know, whatever, like just all, all these really crazy things. And people are always looking for higher orders of complexity when in reality it's like, okay, but can you even like, you haven't even hit your calories for seven days in a right. row. Why, why do you want to, you know, try out the supplement or why do you want to do like a calorie cycling approach? Why do you want to do this and do nutrient timing? Like you haven't even been able to hit your calories. Right. And I think a lot of the times it's because it's like dining is really hard and you're probably going to suck at it. That's just the reality. And so, when you mm-hmm. are faced with the reality that, hey, I suck at this and it's a skill and I need to develop it over time, you want something to be good at. So, you're probably going to gravitate towards something that maybe is within your strengths. You know, so I've got a lot of people who are really good at just putting themselves through the grinder. So, they'll usually do more, they'll usually actually be better with complicated stuff than they will be with simple stuff. But that's obviously to their detriment because it's like they can go in and carve out time to train, but they can't get more than four hours sleep a night and it's like dude like you're shooting yourself. <laughs> and, and and that's that's a big problem you know from a practical standpoint anyways when when you're developing like nutritional interventions or, or training protocols and things like that um that was honestly all all the questions i had for you um do you want to maybe just kind of summarize what we talked about and even if you just kind of want to touch on something new to kind of leave
1: some of the listeners with So, I mean, we we obviously talked about obesity, the different classifications of obesity. We talked about BMI, different measurements for um, just obesity itself, the limitations of of some of those measurements, and also some of the considerations. We talked about metabolically healthy obese versus metabolically unhealthy obese. And if I do recall, we did mention haze, We mentioned um, sort of anti-diet diet. and fat acceptance, in that in that little sphere of things, and then we also mention uh, ambival- ambivalence. Um, it's something I really want to leave people off with is sort of what you were saying. If you can't do the the smallest thing, if you can't achieve that, what makes you think you're gonna make you're gonna make the big change, or you're gonna make that big goal if you can't even do the small shit, you know? And I'm not sure if I could curse on your butt. <laughs> Yeah, if you can't do you're the good. small shit, all right, cool, good. If you can't do the small shit, what makes you think you're gonna do the big shit? You know, that's it's it's not gonna happen. Um, it's really not about uh, the goal itself, it's about the process. It's really about mastering and loving the process, and eventually, eventually, you'll get to where you want to go. That's how you got to treat nutrition. It's a process, it's one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time it's the overall pattern. It's, it's literally the overall pattern. You're not going to make or break your health in one meal, but a series of meals could really help you out or really fuck you up. So you need to really try to master the process and try to do the simplest thing first and master that before you move on to anything else.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I mean, it's real hard for people to take an iterative approach, but that's just kind of the way it has to be. Right. Um, where can people find you?
1: So I'm on IG at Mr. Cogfit at MR.COGFIT. I'm also on uh TikTok, same use, well, same handle. I'm also on Twitter at Mr. Cogfit, no dot. And I think that's about it.
0: Awesome. So all that's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys, definitely make sure you go check them out. Puts out a lot of great content on the regular J.B.,
1: thanks so much for jumping on, man. It was awesome chatting with you. It was great having me. Thank you. Appreciate it.